Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Tsai. She's an emergency medicine resident at the Yale School of Medicine. I'm really excited to have her here, and I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Hey, uh, really excited to be here. Max and I actually met several years ago, uh, so I guess this conversation has been years in the making. Um, I am a new intern uh, in emergency med here in New Haven, uh, but trying to find time to do other things as well, community advocacy, writing, um, and it's been really interesting. Uh, I learn something new every day. I also feel a little dumb every day, but I think that's part of intern year. Right. Um, so... A few years ago, you wrote a paper basically calling for the importance of more um, critical race theory, sort of like insertion into medical school curricula. Um, I'm curious sort of like what brought you or what motivated you to start writing and, you know, doing more advocacy um, in favor of um, critical race theory education in med school. Yeah, a lot of it was that the transition from undergrad to medical school was such kind of like a dramatic break for me. It was um, really uncomfortable. And a lot of that is, you know, in undergrad, my degree was in ethnic studies, uh, which was heavily involving Africana studies, American studies, sociology, inequality, history. And in all of these classes, we would talk about the dangers of, you know, medicine reifying race. We would talk about how important it is for history to inform the ways we think about things, to come up with different interrogations that can see how inequality plays out and, and what happens if you don't. Mm-hmm. And so going from these seminars with these amazing, amazing professors to, you know, medical school where suddenly you're asked to just memorize a bunch of stuff and you're not really thought to consider race um, or social inequality at all. It was watching all of these things that I was warned about recapitulate themselves over and over again right in front of me. And I think that was really motivating Um And it felt really wrong. You know, I went from all these really smart, amazing teachers telling me this is why you don't do this to seeing it play out again and again in front of me. Mm -hmm. So I remember when we first met, you gave a talk about this. And um, one of the things that you mentioned was about the way in which basically medical curricula reinforces the notion of race as biology, Uh, and I'm curious how you've seen that play out, both in the curriculum, but also sort of like other forms of content that medical students um, sort of have to get, that we have to get ourselves um, familiar with. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting. You know, I've given this talk about race and medicine a few different places, Um, you know, at Harvard, at Yale, at Brown, um, other schools in the Boston area, and there have been a few times where afterwards I get these emails from people who are in the audience saying, like, wow, now that we've talked about it, I see it everywhere. And it's true. It's it's really everywhere. It's in UTI screening, you know, scoring algorithms. It's in hypertension. It's in um, the FRAX tool for osteoporosis. It's in the ways we talk about psychotic medications, antipsychotic uh, medications and, and different racial differences. In every arena and in every specialty of medicine, you really see race-based medicine play out or, or um, manifest over and over again. And I think it's really alarming because of the way it concretizes this idea that race is something biologic and genetic and essential, something that's in us, you know, whether it's in our DNA, in our skin, in our hearts, in our kidneys. And um, that's the kind of message we're taught over and over again. Um, and I think there are some clear problems with that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so one of my previous guests, um, Professor Roberts um, at UPenn, also sort of brought this issue within the context of um, uh, maternal health and mm -hmm. basically, you know, the argument that many scholars have made at this point, and I think um, it's sort of like borne out to be true, is that a lot of the race-based um, sort of like medicine or theories or the scores that are being used uh, in medicine are sort of like rooted in assumptions from like the days of slavery, mm -hmm. um, like this whole thing about like muscle mass um, yeah. or like the, the PFT, the pulmonary function test, like those types of things. How, are you aware of any changes? Like, is this moving? Is this going anywhere or in a better direction? Um, I think there is movement. There's work being done, I think, in multiple different institutions to really question this a little bit more critically. I think the tough part is that sort of the weight of biomedicine or this authority of this, you know, quote-unquote objective perspective is really eclipsing of that. With all of these equations, with the MDRD, with race corrections and spirometry, there has been literature and research that have disproved it pretty concretely, especially discussions. You know, people have in, devoted their entire careers on explaining why it doesn't make sense to think about race as a biologic variable. Those have existed for decades. Mm -hmm. Troy Duster, Anne Morning, Nobles, Lundy Brown, Professor Roberts. You know, all of these people have amazing, smart careers dissecting why this is not an accurate scientific concept, and yet it continues to exist because of other powers and other mights. And so on one hand, it's really heartening because we have these incredible pieces of literature and data to point to. On the other hand, those have existed for a long time and change is still really incremental. Um, whenever I have this conversation, I always bring up this 500 to 1 ratio of NIH funding uh, Nancy Krieger is this amazing epidemiologist at Harvard School of Public Health, and she um, did a did an analysis of NIH-funded grants from 1994 to 2005 and found there was a 500 to 1 ratio of funding that looked at race and genetics rather than race as it pertains to inequity, inequality, racism, segregation, discrimination. And so when you have that kind of imbalance in the kind of data conclusions and perspectives that you're generating, it, you know, it, it's it's hard to battle against that. I think that's really important to think about. I see. So what are the ways in which you may have seen this play out sort of like in a day-to-day -day practice of medicine, both even before the practice of medicine, like in the classroom, yeah. um, in interactions with colleagues, and then in the practice of medicine. Yeah. Um, you know, one, I, I wrote a piece for Stat News about uh, our board exams. I think that's a first example that comes to mind. We are trained for a majority of our early medical school career to take this test. You know, I, it sounds like you took it recently, and it's yes. awful. I'm done. Thank <laughs> God. <laughs> um, but it, it really does rely on racial clues, you know, it, to the point where there are jokes across the Internet. Right. right? Bigot your way to success. Right. And I think that's a huge indicator for me. You know, when something has a meme made out of it, there's a cultural understanding and recognition that speaks to how pervasive it is. So when you get things like, oh, a four-year-old African-American um you know, male comes in, you are already primed to think of things like sickle cell. Yep. If it's a woman who's coming in coughing, you're primed to think of sarcoidosis. The same way you're primed, if they're white, to think about cystic fibrosis. Um, and that, I think, is not something to take lightly. 
there are a lot of snap judgments that we make in medicine. And I think being an intern this year that has come out even stronger, realizing that, you know, when I call a consult, when I examine somebody, when I talk to my attending, people are making decisions in split seconds. And sometimes it means, how are we going to fix this foot? What kind of medication are we going to give? What dose are we going to give? Are we going to give pain medications? All of those are predicated on judgments. And when we're trained to think about race as a meaningful category to make those decisions, you know, it, it's something that comes up every single day, multiple times a day, and it's it's scary sometimes. Mm-hmm. So Professor Roberts gave a talk specifically about the sort of like use of race in medicine in a somewhat erroneous way. And I think some of the um, counter arguments that she has received and that we've all heard from mm-hmm. some of either colleagues or uh, more seasoned professors as well. So what do you make of sickle cell or what do you make of this, those um, very specific um, diseases that are like, you know, linked to genetics um, and that sort of nuance between like race, ethnicity, migration and geography. Mm-hmm. So like what what what's your take on that? Yeah, sickle cell is brought up so much and I think there are really plain explanations right. to why it's not as simple as it is. I'm not sure exactly, you know, the arguments she went through, but Africa's a continent, right? And actually this the selection that we talk about for sickle cell as protection against malaria is isolated to a very specific region of Africa, which again is an entire continent. Mm-hmm. There are also black people around the world that are not from Africa necessarily, not not saying that they're not from Africa, but don't identify as African. You know, they live in the Caribbean. They have had generations in um, other continents, other countries. And so to reduce all of that to the idea that black skin is really a proxy for something like sickle cell is is inaccurate. I think there's also fantastic data that shows um, certain genetic clusters in the Mediterranean have much higher probability of having sickle cell than any given area of Africa, especially if it's not in those regions that were specifically um, sort of organized around that trait, if that makes sense. Um, I think beyond that, and something that I always come back to is, you know, we don't really have a good definition for race. Um, There have been multiple studies done looking at large samplings of NIH papers. Do they define race? Do they define why they're looking at race? How are they explicitly saying what it means to be black or seeing this again when you ask about, you know, how does this play a role in everyday encounters, having people use words like African, African-American, black uh, interchangeably Mm -hmm. without actually questioning what the distinctions are. And what that does is it, it makes for bad science. It makes it inaccurate when we draw conclusions because we're using, you know, gestalt on what does it mean to be black? What right. does it mean to be one race or, or an ethnicity? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is something that I've sort of like toyed with in my mind, but not like entirely or not as thoroughly as probably um, one would sort of like write out a scientific theory. But so when I think about malaria, uh, I think there are many types of environmental exposures like over like the centuries probably that yeah. have had um, an impact on these different polymorphisms that end up leading to like a, a trait or some type of mutation, which then, you know, like could lead to replication of disease. But I feel like um, what isn't talked about much is thinking about sort of like geographic 
my, like sort of like ancestry and geographic and migration. And mm-hmm. I think, I guess the difference when I think sickle cell is only one of those diseases that like are sort of like thought, you know, thought of as regional. But the difference then is like within the context of sickle cell is like, yes, many people are carriers of the trade, but then with education or lack of, then, like, whether the disease itself replicates has to do with probably, like, people being aware of, like, yeah, if I'm a carrier of the trade and my partner is a carrier of the trade, then maybe Mm -hmm. then there's a high likelihood that our child is going to... And, like, within a context of then treating sickle cell or, like, coming across sickle cell in a clinical setting, um, when I think about countries in the Mediterranean Sea versus, like, sub-Saharan Africa. I'm from Cameroon, right? Like, mm-hmm. social economics, like, play um, <laughs> a, role. a huge role yeah. in whether or not people get, like, premarital counseling, which then might raise the point of, like, hey, you're a sickle cell trade Absolutely. carrier, and just be aware of that. Yeah. And I think that's the whole point is it's not simple, and I think so much of, you know, biomedicine and the perspective it holds is about making things clean, right? You know, erasing noise to find the signal to say, okay, how do we control for things like race? And you you can't, you know, you can't just categorize people by race and think um, that it filters out all of these other things, socioeconomic status, income, the weight of history and oppression and trauma, migration, all of these things cannot be simplified with one social category and and doing so again, is not good science. And that's the biggest part of this that is sometimes irksome and and sometimes, uh, again, heartening because it's so simple. You know, a lot of these questions are about asking scientists to essentially play by their own rules, define your variable, right? These are like the main tenets of, of scientific inquiry that we're taught as like third and fourth graders. You have to define your variable. And we're not even doing that. And it speaks to how encoded race has has been in terms of a variable that we think of as genetic or biologic or essential in people and in our patients. Mm-hmm. Um, within a context of education, so like now that you've been in residency, um, does that come up in like the curriculum? Does the matter of like addressing race as a non-biologic like criteria when you're seeing patients, like how, how has that been... Um, I don't think so, not in my formal education. I think it's something that I'm thinking through a lot. You know, to be honest, there's been a transition for me being a med student, especially last year being a fourth-year med student, where I had a lot of time and I think I had more relationships with people where this conversation would happen a little bit more easily or I think I was a little bit more courageous or more brave or more willing to have this conversation, you know, within clinical spaces. I think now I'm an intern, I'm new to this institution, I'm new to this city, um, and it's a little bit harder for me to launch into questions around this topic um, as easily. Also because I'm an intern and I'm trying to figure out how the hospital works and I'm trying to take care of, you know, more patients that I've taken care of before, um, it does feel like I have to recalibrate and and rethink about how I want to approach this, especially while I'm working as an intern. Mm -hmm. Um, so if I were to, if you were to design a curriculum or if you were to be in charge of like education, both at the, the medical education mm-hmm. and graduate medical education level, um, obviously like we've had conversations about the need for critical race theory yeah. in education, like, but practically what would that look like for you? Um, yeah, for me, 
I, I think it really comes back to first understanding that biomedicine is a kind of pair of goggles that we look through, right? Mm-hmm. That I think point zero for me or the, the origin of where we have to start this conversation is the idea that biomedicine has a very specific way of thinking about things that reduces history, that reduces um, the complexity and nuances of, of social theories, and also kind of tries to speak from this objective vantage point. But the point is, and the reason why I think, you know, science and society literature is so fascinating is, you know, humans make science. There's always an observer, and you have to be keenly aware of how that's played out, you know, in individual cases through history. I think that's the way that you think about it the most. So how has science actually been a very, very powerful and compelling political weapon? What kind of political forces, chronologic forces, um, you know, ideas of white supremacy, of heterosexism, of homosexism, create the kind of ways we interpret data or hunt data or create our results. Science is, you know, very social when you think about it. And I think it has a history of discrediting social science, you know, in terms of sociology history in its effort to sort of separate itself as a as an authority in all things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is, you know, the first part we have to think about before and so we can launch into these conversations about race and medicine, gender, inequality. You have to realize that for a very long time, science has been informed by a single perspective, and our failure to understand that perspective is actually recapitulating a lot of these issues. Mm-hmm. So then, um, what I have found to be like a barrier in terms of like having these conversations and mm-hmm. making sure that they're effective is just like many of us come into med schools from like different backgrounds, and yeah. you have people that already believe in things like in a certain way, like. Like, luckily, like, you studied, like, race, ethnicity, and migration in college. Um, I personally didn't have much of an education in the social sciences. I just, like, have a lived experience as a black man. Yeah. Uh, Oh, that. Yeah, right. Just just that. (laughs) um, Right. But, like, I'm curious how... um, how you feel about getting that message across when, you know, like, some people just, like, don't have that that background um, within the context of, like, this is the medical school curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a couple of things. One is invest in your educators. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, a huge part of my medical training was getting very smart people who were great at their field to come in and give lectures. And I think, you know, there are certainly strengths to that. I had some great teachers in medical school. But at the same time, being very good at your job does not mean that you're a very good teacher. Um, And I think there's so much to be said about investing in educational resources, supporting people who do education really well, financially and professionally. It's not something that's always really rewarded um, when you think about academic circles, when you think about academic advancement. And really what you need are teachers who are skilled at having really complicated, nuanced conversations and facilitating them in a really great way. Um, I think that's something that I you know, learned a lot about having been at the um, the Harvard Graduate School of Education, thinking about education really as a as a craft and a skill that needs to be built the same way we build everything else. Mm-hmm. 
two, you know, this comes up a lot. And I think a lot of times in medical school, we, we ran into this barrier of people saying, oh, people, you know, have a lot of different backgrounds. It's really hard to talk about race and health policy and social inequity um, and design it in a way that could be a standardized, generalized curriculum for everybody. And I think my rebuttal to that is, is strong because, you know, so I was a I was a plemie. I was part of the program in liberal medical education at Brown, which I absolutely loved. And part of it meant that I didn't have to take certain pre-med requirements. So I never took biochemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, my, like... You didn't miss out on much. I'm yeah, <laughs> I don't regret it. But very early when I started medical school, we had a block on biochemistry. Yes. And I sat next to somebody with a PhD in biochemistry. And that is an example of people coming from wildly different backgrounds. And guess what? We took the same exam. We had the same educational material. I was expected to learn it, and I was expected to take a test. And I did it. So if you have somebody who has a a PhD in biochemistry sitting next to somebody who has never taken biochemistry, being expected to have the same training and curriculum you can apply that same principle to things like race, history, inequality, social science, right? You are already showing me that people of different backgrounds have an expectation to learn it if it is deemed appropriate for medical training. Mm -hmm. And I think I believe that this is something that is appropriate and necessary for medical training. Right. So basically this comes down to what do medical – what do the powers that be – find to be, like, important to be standardized. Yeah, and I think about this, you know, I think Brown was incredible in giving students the opportunity to shape curriculum. You know, whenever we went to the administrators, they said, okay, if you want to design a preclinical elective, if you want to put together a presentation for this or that, please do it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a fine line between that wonderful opportunity that I'm truly grateful for Um, And also the idea that some of it has to be institutionalized so that it's not just dependent on student labor or student activism. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, I I think about this in terms of if there was an LCME requirement that said, you know, the anatomy curriculum should be reformed and it needs to be redone, I find it hard to believe that they would say, okay, well, let's just, you know, let's get a group of students to do that. You know, like we have people who are anatomy professors who have PhDs in this area, come teach us, come design our curriculum, come help us dissect cadavers. And in the same way, I think it's really important to acknowledge the authority and expertise of social scientists who have careers and PhDs and long, uh, you know, extensive experience in these areas to come teach us, to come design our curriculum, to come dissect these problems with us. Indeed. Um it sounds like oftentimes so few of them are actually faculty at medical schools. Right. And one of the issues that I have found so far being involved in sort of like these curriculum task forces is that there isn't often as much sort of like um, cross-college communication. So like we're here in the School of Medicine and we like work with people in the School of Public Health and it might stop there. Like I don't necessarily see as much of that, like, you know, like, who's going to the Department of Sociology to speak with medical sociologists. And sometimes, um, I don't know, sometimes it's like, why is, why is it that the person who is going to teach us on Im- implicit bias, I just picked that randomly, yeah. like 
like a physician and I don't know, not a social psychologist. Right. Yeah, I think about this often and, you know, Brown was so amazing because it had such interdisciplinary work and, you know, professors like Lundy Brown were so instrumental in, in doing some of this work and I think I had a head start because I also went to undergrad there so I had some connections and some, you know, ways to contact professors from undergrad while I was at med school. But at the same time, the medical school campus and and building was apart from the undergrad and graduate campus where Africana Studies, American Studies were. And then the School of Public Health was also in a separate geographic location. And you think about how that splinters and, and kind of undermines the opportunity to have these conversations that are really needed. The point is that we need more interdisciplinary collaboration. And until we do that, you know, we it's it's kind of foolish and inefficient to think that that scientists and doctors can do it all. And I think that's my point. A lot of people, when we have this conversation, say, oh, well, you're advocating for doctors to have to learn everything, you know, and our time in medical school is limited. We have to learn about lung cancer and biochemistry biochemistry and GERD. And now you're asking us to also become social workers. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying give us teachers, give us opportunities and access points so that we can learn, so that we can be better clinicians, mm-hmm. not that we have to do everything ourselves. Right. Um, one of the struggles that I've, I've found so far is that, um, you know, even at the preclinical level, a lot of us, like, spend our time and invest resources in, like, making sure that we and, like, some of our peers who will listen to, to these conversations um, are sort of, like, prepared to handle the conversations in the clinical setting. Yeah. Um, but then, like you mentioned, the sort of, like, decisions that are made, like, in a second. Um, and also the sort of, like... Um, observed beha- the experience with observed behaviors and the um, uh, how do they call that the hidden curriculum right yeah. the things that we see on the wards and the ways in which sometimes some of the statistical discrimination um, <laughs> to put it nicely uh, <laughs> contributes to reproducing the things that we you know we mean to fight at least like when we're teaching ourselves in the preclinical phase yeah. um, it's like a real struggle right like you're you come in idealistic into the clerkship and then like you witness time and time yeah. um, the opposite of what was meant to be taught in the preclinical phase, yeah. uh, at least within the context of um, like equity and fairness, especially when it comes to either minority patients or even um, uh, sexual and gender minorities. Yeah. Um, it's like a huge barrier. And I'm just curious, like what your thoughts are in terms of like that you know, maintenance of, of in, I guess, in, integrity in trainees once we cross over to the clinical side. Yeah. I think what feels most salient for me in thinking about that is, you know, med, med school was a tough time for me. Um, and I think the most important thing and, and why I'm really grateful for my classmates and peers at Brown And the biggest piece of advice that I would give other people who are struggling with these same questions is find your group of people that reminds you that what we're seeing is absurd. It is really easy when you see it time after time, year after year. And, you know, I think 
it's important to have humility as a trainee that you don't know everything, right? And it's really easy, I think, especially for women, especially for people of color who have imposter syndrome, to think, oh, maybe I maybe I don't really know what's going on. You know, like these are people who have years and decades of clinical experience more so than me. Maybe they they know something that I don't. And you have to find the people and surround yourself with the people who will say, no, like, nope, there's, we have to like resist the Stockholm syndrome here. We have to not assimilate. We have to not flow into this, this notion of like, oh, maybe it's actually okay that we do this. Maybe it's like scientific. Maybe there, no, it's not. And I think the, the most powerful thing that I had and the most important thing I think you know, that I would recommend for other people is is that raft of people to say, nope, like what we're seeing is absurd and to always remind you of that. You know, I've talked to people who similarly have critical consciousness in law school or business school or, or whatever trade you're in, education, finance, whatever. Um, you need people to keep reminding you that it's wrong and that it's ridiculous and... It, it gives you a little amulet of, I think, safety and protection uh, from from falling into a lot of the same traps that we see all the time. Agreed. Well, Jenny, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to yeah. have you on the pod. Um, and I'm so happy we finally got to do this. Yeah. We've been talking about this for a while now. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you're, of course, welcome to join me back here um, for more discussion on other topics of your choice. Absolutely. Thank all you right. so much. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.